KPFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, Jingle Bells, oh boy, <laughs> Jingle Bells, Bloody Hells, I love that title, Hell in High Water, that was the last show, Hell in High Water, my kind of book, just swell, did I want to tell you about a book about Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> yes, it's called The Dark Side of Genius, speaking of bloody hells, I just thought I should come down here and get myself physically in the chair. Uh, you know how it is. I've spent the last 24 hours with Coffee TV on. Coffee TV gives you a picture of uh, a Yule log. 24 hours is wonderful fire. We know that television is just an excuse. You know, it, it what do you call that, uh, replaces uh, the fireplace, um, the carbon footprints don't allow us to burn fireplaces much anymore. So coffee just puts it on about every three hours or so. A new log lands on the fire. You don't see anybody there. You just see the log land on the fire and then maybe a poker. I think coffee TV is a trip. I'm going to write and thank them. Yes. Give each thought its action. My New Year's resolution. Uh Next week, I'll be here again live, and if you've got a resolution that you think can change the world, please mail it in, and I can read it on the air. Uh, ah, a New Year's resolution, give every thought its action. I mean, if nothing else, send a postcard to Barack and tell him, you know, no first strike anything, something, uh... Oh, 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 Yule Logs, indeed. Actually, coffee also plays music. You know, the kind of Christmas music for people like me. Eartha Kitt's Santa Baby is my favorite, yes. We loved that in the 1950s. God bless the 1950s. I, I was looking at the Pope there, at the Basilica there in Rome, and I thought at least... You can mark about half-inch of progress. Pope Benedict, in these days, mentions the misuse of religion. <laughs> it took half a century to get that far. Mm, today is my 55th wedding anniversary. I got married in Manhattan back in 1957. And uh, I... Uh, 
dragged my new husband to see uh, my fair lady. We got standing room only. Was there on Broadway, Julie Andrews. Yes. Julie Andrews. Lex Harrison. She was 21 years old, two years younger than yours truly. God bless her. I saw her the other day. Ah, I shouldn't mention it's a little depressing. She was playing the nanny in Eloise. Uh, oh, well, it's a gig. It's work. What the hell? Uh, <laughs> my 55th wedding anniversary. Oh, I don't mean to plague you. I, I just wanted to mention that, uh, we do, we do creep. Yes, the arc of history. We do bend towards Wisdom, the Pope did say it was time, you know, to uh, beat our swords into plowshares. He said it, he said it. He said that we are diminished by our cultural violence, but we can be cool and, you know, uh, we may be rotten to the core, but we won't be rotten anymore. <laughs> anyway, I tried to write a piece today for the uh, children, for the courage of children thinking of the children's funerals going on now. Uh, well, actually, all around the world, not just not just in uh, down there uh, in Sandy Hook, not just that. Uh, whether the children are destroyed by the drones or by the psychopathic rage of individual madmen, uh, it is the children who suffer. Back in the 19th century here, I've got uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, if I can remember. My memory is melting. Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, yes, do you hear the children crying, oh, my brothers? I think weeping, she said. Do you hear the children weeping, oh, my brothers, ere the sorrow comes with years? They are leaning their young heads Against their mothers. That cannot stop their tears. Indeed, Elizabeth Barrett Browning understood that nothing changes until the fathers love their children more than they hate their enemies. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, last week I read A. A. Milne's little poem, Now We Are Six, which is a little too ironic for some people. One person thought it was a little... A little cloying to read A. A. Milne. Let me try it one more time. It's a little collection of poems that I like to read to the children at Christmas. And uh, the lead poem is, Now We Are Six. Right. When I was one, I'd just begun. When I was two, I was nearly new. When I was three, I was hardly me. When I was four, I was not much more. When I was five, I was hardly alive. Oh, but now I'm six, and I'm clever as clever. So I'll just be six forever and ever. As indeed all or most of those children will be six Forever and ever and ever, and some of them were even only five. Ah, uh, never mind. Uh, 
I did mean to thank all of those of you who sent me letters and poems and a Christmas card or two. <laughs> We're still here, folks. We're still here. Now, I had planned to talk all about the children today. Uh, uh, the children's classics, Tiny Tim Time. Then last night I was reading over the selections I picked, and I find that I can't do it. I get the weeps. Now, that's that's a mark of age. Aha. The worst is the bird's Christmas carol. Not a classic, perhaps, but it's the worst sort of thing from the 19th century. 1886 classic, The Bird's Christmas Carol. Carol is a little girl born on Christmas morning. She dies 11 years later, having tenderized and uh, humanized her family and her friends and the Ruggleses, the little kids who live nearby, a family with nine children, Dickensian touch, yes. <laughs> Charles Dickens. And think of Louisa May Alcott. Uh, the women. Little women. Little Beth dies. Uh-huh. I think the 19th century allowed children to die and to, in so doing, to bring compassion to the people in their families. Ah. Uh, that's a hard number to follow. Apparently, uh, the presence of death allowed those still living to practice random acts of kindness, you know. Uh, little Carol's three brothers are vastly improved. <laughs> I'm not sure whether suffering ennobles, enlightens, whatever. Let's see. The little Ruggleses in the Bird's Christmas Carol. This wonderful family, I think. I don't know if this is the same author. Is she the one who wrote Five Little Peppers and How They Grew? I loved those. What is the author's name? Kate Douglas Wiggin, W-I-G-G-I-N. Very popular. These books aren't around uh, much anymore. I think of the, <laughs> the quintessential uh well, I won't call them maudlin. Let's call them just uh, sentimentalizing. Uh, Elsie Dinsmore. Anybody remember Elsie Dinsmore? Actually, Elsie Dinsmore, I think I could classify under masochism. Elsie suffers the agonies of the damned when she displeases her father. Oh, dear, dear. At some point last night, I found myself looking at the pictures, the illustrations. That's the best part of 19th century children's literature. I have a huge collection. I just love the the uh, illustrations, drawings of Arthur Rackham. He's my favorite, but there are, oh, um, at least a dozen absolutely stunning uh I think of them as great painters. I framed a few of those. Anyway, um, just, you know, if you just go on the net or you go in the bookstore, you can find those still pictures. I think maybe the difference between my generation and the ones that followed can be, can be summed up by the, the still, the still drawings, the, paintings of the 19th century children's stories. Compare that with the 
hysteria we see with moving pictures. Nowadays, the children's minds are kind of rattled. Anyway, it may be just as well that dying children are no longer a subject of, uh, just that, uh, well, invalid children, let's call them. Uh, they made a virtue of necessity, I guess, if there were children whose health was drastic. I think of the polio epidemic. Uh, oh, as it says here in Bird's Christmas Carol, love could do nothing. Uh, the mother and father finally arrive at that point. They realize love could do nothing. Death was inevitable. And so they learned how to, well, how to try to make the death of the child beautiful. I don't know. Uh, I have to think about that one a little bit more. I, uh, I think of all the conversion syndromes of the children in those days, how they... Uh, they made their suffering manifest, their, what is that, inability to to play, to be uh, fully alive. How, well, I think, let's see, what's the worst one? Uh, the secret garden, the little boy uh, who is crippled by the lack of his father's love and how uh, nature itself has to come to his rescue. You know the sort of thing. Never mind. Several people told me we should talk about the movies because that's what they meant to do on their Christmas holiday. They wanted to go to the pictures. And I had a lot to recommend. I think maybe I can work on um, Les Mis and... Uh, um, oh, what's the other good one? Anna Karenina. And the best one, of course, is Lincoln. I talked a little bit about Lincoln a week or so ago uh that is the piece of acting that is to die for. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Alfred Hitchcock because a lot of people seem to think this is an important film. Uh, it's got uh, oh, our best actors. Alan Mirren plays his wife, Alma. There have been several other films about Alfred Hitchcock. One of them is called The Girl, a particularly depressing movie about... Tippi Hedren, the way Alfred Hitchcock uh, tormented this actress when she was a young woman. She seems to have survived it. <laughs> anyway, I have a review of uh, The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock by Donald Spoto. It's a review that I wrote, oh, way back in the day. Let's see, it's from the Chronicle back in the 80s, and this is the book that I think blows the whistle on Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, now, that is not to say that his work is not art. I loved Rebecca, as a matter of fact, but uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jennifer in 19... Well, I don't have the date on this thing, but it is in the 1980s in the San Francisco Chronicle... I called it Red Herrings and Black Humor, The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock by Donald Spoto, S-P-O-T-O, -O, from Little Brown. And uh, it was not an authorized biography. Obviously, the biographer does not like Alfred Hitchcock, kind of like me anyway. Hmm. Hitchcock had told Truffaut, quote, 
I'd like to try to do an anthology on food showing its arrival in the city, its distribution, the selling, the buying by people, the cooking, the various ways in which it's consumed, what happens to it in the various hotels and how it's fixed up and absorbed and gradually by the end of the film... We uh, show the sewers and the garbage being dumped out into the ocean. So there's a cycle beginning with the gleaming fresh vegetables and ending with that mess that's poured into the sewers. I have a footnote here and back into the sea, my God. Ah. Anyway. Uh, thematically. Alfred Hitchcock goes on to say, this is the quote, thematically the cycle would show what people do to good things. Theme might almost be the rottenness of humanity. <laughs> we see where Al's coming from. Al Hitchcock didn't like humanity much. The review, my review goes on to say, it's a reductive to say that Sir Alfred Joseph Hitchcock was a minor ghoul. His were the major fantasies of a middle-class Jack the Ripper. Born the working-class son of a fishmonger in London's East End in 1899. Alfred Hitchcock later denied his Irish ancestry, stating that his family had been English, quote, for centuries. In fact, three of Hitchcock's grandparents were Irish, and unless on a severe diet, he never ate dinner without potatoes, a dish he was reared on by his doting Cockney Catholic mother. Food was solace for young Fred, who ate to assuage his night terrors in later life at 5'8". He weighed as much as 365 pounds. Donald Spoto's very readable biography, The Dark Side of Genius, was not authorized by Hitchcock's survivors. His only daughter, Patricia, states that her father had no wish to have his life researched. The secretive Hitchcock kept no diaries, journals, or notebooks. The few personal letters that have survived are short, formal, and cryptic. Hitch, as he called himself, was a visually oriented being whose use of words did more to obscure than to reveal. <clears throat> Those wickedly funny monologues with which he opened his weekly television shows in the 1950s, it turns out. Those were written by Jim... Allardyce. Hitchcock's own brand of macabre humor was, of course, the saving grace of his films of television. He said, its invention is an interesting chapter in the history of entertainment. can be compared to the introduction of indoor plumbing. It brought no change in the public's habits. It simply eliminated the necessity of leaving the house. Similar scatological observations are scattered throughout this book. Anna Massey, the actress Anna Massey, 
daughter of Raymond Massey, remember, states, this is uh, regarding the movie Frenzy back in 1971. She was, yes, so wonderful in Frenzy. Why did she have to go through that? No, back to the review. Anna Massey said, there was a salacious, frustrated quality to his humor. The review goes on to state Hitchcock's darker impulses found relief in vicious jokes. <laughs> His jokes were often more intense than the usual British water closet variety. On one occasion, he bet a prop man a week's salary that he hadn't the nerve to spend a whole night chained to a camera in a deserted, darkened studio when the man agreed... Hitchcock, Hitchcock handcuffed him to the machine and pocketed the key before departing. Hitchcock offered the man a large drink of brandy to keep up his courage. The next morning, the crew discovered it had been laced with a powerful laxative. <laughs> yes. Not the sort of fellow you want to go camping with. Okay, back to the review, back to the review. Donald Spoto explores Hitchcock's early life, concludes that the films are profoundly autobiographical. The Buddha of British films was apparently an ultra-sensitive Victorian kid. Severely repressed, deeply frightened, there is also evidence that this lonely dumpling uh, had a sadistic streak, even as a schoolboy, although he was perhaps more pampered than others of his class, his memories of a harsh father, of being left alone, and of imprisonment and of policemen are later morbidly magnified in his movies. <laughs> Trying to think in this review if I... Yes, okay, if I told the story about his father sending him to the police station for an overnight. Anyway, the biographer in this... Uh, this book, The Dark Side of Genius, emphasizes the schism in Alfred Hitchcock's soul, what Carl Jung calls the shadow. Raised on the doctrine of original sin, Hitchcock taps into one of the darkest universals, guilt. His work is a soup of sin and death, crime and sex. Spoto compares Hitchcock's art to that of the 15th century Flemish painter, Hieronymus Bosch. At 16, young Fred loved Edgar Allan Poe. His favorite fictional heroine was Flaubert's Madame Bovary. Charles Dickens' bleak house gripped him. The picture of Dorian Gray, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, these filled his dreams. This pathology of the double, sharply expressed in his treatment of women, both in his life and in his art simultaneously attracted and repelled. He both desires and despises. In life, Hitchcock was more son than lover, cared for first by his mother, and then by his lifelong wife, Alma Lucy Revel, R-E-V-I-L-L-E, -L -L -E, Alma Lucy Revel. He states that after a few years of marriage, he lived chaste. In life, Hitchcock was more son than lover. Yes, indeed. Uh, what else do I have to say here? 
Alma, his wife, is described as a brilliant screenwriter and film editor. She subordinated her career to her husband's. The union was apparently based on a kind of professional symbiosis rather than a grand passion. She appeared long-suffering in public. Uh, she bossed or mothered him in private. Her one pregnancy, uh, the daughter Patricia, right, disgusted Hitchcock. It was not repeated. Hitchcock, as we know, preferred blondes, but he was no gentleman. In later years, his sadistic assault on the actresses became became uh, pretty much public. Tippi Hedren in The Birds, 1963, is a testament to his nasty uh, treatment of women. His revenge for his dependence on women and perhaps for their rejection of him is evidenced by these tortures that he inflicts on his actresses in Psycho, there's a bizarre matricide. The rape-murder in Frenzy is described by the uh, biographer as, quote, one of the most repellent examples of a detailed murder in the history of film. Ah, uh, I've never been able to watch it to the end. The art of Alfred Hitchcock cannot be said to be in its content... He was obsessed with creeps and criminals, the children of chaos. Yes, those creeps who tell us all about the evil that lurks within our own hearts. The little boy Fred hung out at the Black Museum at Scotland Yard. It was a kind of police chamber of horrors. Later, he recalled, quote, They've got all the shoes of prostitutes from the Gaslight era. There's more here about which... Uh, which colors and sizes uh, indicated the prostitute's specialties, you know. Of course, Hitchcock noticed other things. He noticed that American films used backlighting. British films looked flat by comparison. He was a technical wunderkind in his 20s. He became a master of red herrings and black humor. By today's standards, his horrific effects are subtle and sophisticated. Best of all, he made terrific pictures like Lifeboat, 1944. Content equal to form. The worst of his films has a scene to remember, uh, like the mother in Marnie, played by Louise Latham. Notorious or the birds, definitely uh, poems of anxiety, absurdity. In his life, as in his films, Hitchcock had a terror of physical suffering. He pursued physical comfort with the passion of the possessed. It's astonishing he lived beyond 80, considering his massive consumption of food and alcohol. He had few close friends and was, in the main, ungenerous, both with himself and with his money. Worth more than 20 million at the last, he forgot those friends he had promised to provide for in his will. His true legacy is the haunting nightmares he left us. At the time of his death in 1980, he was more than ever afraid of the dark. Among the last Hitchcock quotes given by Spoto is, quote, I am a sea of alone. 
that's the end of my review. And I had some wonderful notes by uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman. Yes, when she went to see Alfred Hitchcock, she too was dying. He was on his deathbed and she tried to explain to him that death was just a part of life, somewhat like the wise 19th century tales that we read um, at Christmas time. This has been Jennifer Stone. I will be back next Tuesday. If you've got a resolution you want to share with our audience, send it to me here at the station. 1929 Martin Luther King Way. Until next Tuesday, this has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. In April 2010, WikiLeaks released a U.S. military video of an Apache helicopter in Baghdad killing a dozen civilians. One month later, Private First Class Bradley Manning, 23 years old, was arrested and charged with leaking this video and other documents. He was put in brutal, solitary confinement. Now he's facing a court-martial. On January 31... KPFA will present a public event saluting Bradley Manning with Daniel Ellsberg, Patricia Ellsberg, and Kevin Gostola, co-author of Truth and Consequences, the U.S. versus Bradley Manning. We'll gather at First Congregational Church of Berkeley, 2345 Channing Way, on Thursday evening, January 31st at 7.30. This is a benefit for the Courage to Resist Defense Fund for Bradley Manning and for KPFA. There's wheelchair access, advanced tickets, $12, through brownpapertickets.com or supportive bookstores. Find full info at kpfa.org slash events. For January 31, saluting Bradley Manning.